Welcome to this sermon from Silver Lake Baptist Church. Our mission is to celebrate the greatness of God with all we are for the joy, hope, and renewal of our community. We are so glad you have chosen to listen to our message. We pray you will be blessed by your time with us today. Sorry. Well, anyway, that you recognize that anybody? I'm doing really bad. Perry Mason. If I could play it better, you'd probably be better at recognizing it too. <laughs> I tried to find that, but you know it's pretty copyrighted, and so best I could do is play it on the bass a little bit. So, did anybody used to watch Perry Mason? Back in the back in the sixties, I used to watch the reruns, but you know I'm gonna take I get to take this off. Yeah. But I only used to watch the second half hour. That's when the courtroom scene always happened. Perry was a defense attorney. Yeah, here we go. Defense attorney representing the innocent defendant from the charge of first-degree murder. Right? He was always usually up against the prosecutor, Hamilton Berger. Hamburger, really? (laughs) But... I knew that whoever was on the witness stand with only five minutes left in the show was the true guilty party. (laughs) So lately, I've been streaming the reruns, too. I I still like it. I also like to watch Judge Judy and Judge Faith. I must have a need for justice in my life. Has anyone anyone here ever been in court? Ever served on a jury? Yeah. Been a witness? Given a deposition, been a plaintiff or a defendant. Now you don't have to answer that one. <laughs> a few years ago, I was summoned to give a couple depositions as an expert witness for some patent infringement cases. It was interesting, but thoroughly exhausting. As I sat in an office in downtown Seattle, answering patent attorneys' questions for eight hours or so, with no notes on something that had happened, you know, ten years earlier. It was like a mini courtroom without a judge. There were plaintiff attorneys, defense attorneys, a stenographer, and a videographer. Everything was carefully recorded. The real trials were somewhere down in California, I think. At least I didn't have to go there. As we'll see today, the courtroom trials back in Paul the Apostle's day were surprisingly similar to courtroom trials today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit this morning. And I just pray that you would fill me with your spirit and guide through, guide me, speak through me, ex- reveal your word to us. Help us to understand it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. So, you know, Will and I have been teaching through the book of Acts. We're still going. The story of the beginning of the Christian church, written by Dr. Luke. Paul had just finished his third missionary journey. This was about A.D., the year 56 or 57. He had traveled from Macedonia to Jerusalem and was there to celebrate Pentecost. Some Jews 
stirred up the whole city, city into a riot, dragging Paul out of the temple and beating him until the commander of the Roman garrison took him into custody, basically saving his life. The commander found out that Paul was a Roman citizen, and so he brought him to the Jewish Sanhedrin, the highest, their highest court, to try to understand why they were trying to have Paul killed. But he was not satisfied with how they responded, so he kept him in protective custody. Meanwhile, the Jewish leaders formed a conspiracy to assassinate Paul, but the commander found out and decided to bring Paul to Caesarea under heavy guard to be tried by Governor Felix. So now we're in Acts 24, verse 1. Chapter 24, verse 1. After five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders with an attorney named Tertullus, and they brought some charges to the governor against Paul. So here's the courtroom setting. The judge is Felix the governor. The plaintiffs are Ananias the high priest with some elders from the Sanhedrin that he brought down. The prosecuting attorney is Tertullus. The scribe is Luke, although he's not the official scribe. Probably, probably this is just an abstract, like a shortened version. It doesn't have all the details in it. But he certainly uses lots of legal terms. And the defendant is Paul. There's no evidence or witnesses, as we'll see. So Ananias, the high priest himself, had hurried down from Jerusalem five days. is pretty fast-moving for somebody as important as he was. Um, hurried down from Jerusalem with his entourage, some of his friends from the Sanhedrin, and a lawyer named Tertullus, who was skilled in Roman legal procedure. It doesn't say if he was Jewish or Gentile, but I'm guessing he was Jewish. Paul had to defend himself. He didn't have an attorney. The word for attorney is interesting. The, word, the, word is, the Greek word is roter, where we get the word rhetoric, which is the art of effective or persuasive speaking or writing. It's also where we get the word orator, a public speaker, especially one who is eloquent or skilled. So that's, that's who this attorney was, somebody who was good, knew all the rules of the Roman court and knew how to speak well. Verse 2, after Paul had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying to the governor, since we have through you attained much peace, and since by your providence reforms are being carried out for this nation, we acknowledge this in every way and everywhere, most excellent Felix, with all thankfulness. But that I may not weary you any further, I beg you to grant us by your kindness a brief hearing. Doesn't that just sound very flowery? I wish I could deliver it a little more pompously. Like this. But this was customary flattery that he was giving to the, uh, to the judge, to the governor. In truth, you know, he says, we've, uh, you've, through you we've attained much peace, but the Jewish people really had less peace under Felix. And they didn't have any reforms at all. In fact, just a few days before, in order to keep... Paul from being ambushed and assassinated back in, back in Acts 23, verse 23, Claudius, the commander, called to him two of the centurions and said, get 200 soldiers and be ready for the third hour of the night to proceed to Caesarea with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen. They had to take all these people. This does not sound like a, like a place that has much peace, that they're having to protect somebody like this who's just, you know, hasn't really done anything wrong. 
But it makes, <laughs> Turtleus reminds me more of Proverbs 26, 28. A lying tongue hates those it crushes and a flattering mouth works ruin. He's just trying to butter up the, butter up the uh, judge to get him on his side. Verse 5, for we have found this man, this is Turtle speaking again, continuing, for we have found this man a real pest and a fellow who stirs up dissension among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. And he even tried to desecrate the temple and then we arrested him. And I'm going to jump down to verse 8. By examining him yourself, Concerning all these matters, you will be able to ascertain the things of which we accuse him. So going back a little bit here, what did he mean when he called it the sect of the Nazarenes? Well, the word for sect is uh, heresis. That's the Greek word where we get our word heretic. But I don't think that's what it means here. I don't think it means a heretic, heretical sect. It just means a group that holds that believes things that are distinctive to it. It's, it's used in other places to describe the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and here Christians. But later on, the word came to mean an heretical sect. It had a negative connotation. And it's Nazarenes because Jesus grew up in the city of Nazareth in Galilee. So they were just, they called it the sect of the Nazarenes, to kind of, as we call them Christians now. Um, going on in verse 9, the Jews also joined in the attack, asserting that these things were so. So, just a summary, here are the charges. First, that Paul was a troublemaker, stirring up dissension, starting riots throughout the world. In other words, insurrection or sedition. Two, that he was a ringleader of the Christians, implying that Christians as a whole were dangerous to the, to the Roman government. And three, he tried that Paul tried to desecrate the temple, which if it were true, would mean Paul would be sent back to the Sanhedrin where he would certainly be killed. It was true that Paul had upset the world. If you remember back in, uh, when, when he was in Thessalonica in Acts 17.6, is when they did not find Paul and his friends, they began, began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. But Paul hadn't started any of the riots in all the places where the riots were, in Lystra and Thessalonica and Corinth, Ephesus, or, or this one in Jerusalem, this most recent one. This charge was totally false. And the second charge, Paul was a leader of the Christians, but there wasn't anything illegal about that yet. <laughs> and we studied, we studied a few months ago what really happened that day in Jerusalem. Acts 21, verse 27. When Paul's seven days of purification were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law in this place. And besides, he's even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was provoked, and the people rushed together, taking hold of Paul. They dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. So, 
Paul had not tried to desecrate the temple, all the charges that they were talking about were false. The prosecuting attorney was lying, and the Jewish high priest and his cronies were lying by agreeing. So there's a, there's a thing I want to look at just as an aside here, and you might have noticed this depending on what version of the Bible you have. I skipped what looked like the second half of verse 6, all of verse 7, and the first half of verse 8, in which, are, which I'll read now. We wanted to judge him according to our law, but Lysias the commander came along and with much violence took him out of our hands, ordering his accusers to come before you. Different versions of the Bible treat this thing differently. The King James puts these verses right into the text. The New King James puts them in with a footnote that these verses were not found in the NU, whatever that is, I'll tell you in a minute. The New American Standard puts them in with special brackets and a footnote saying early manuscripts do not contain these verses. The New International the English Standard and the New Revised Standard all leave them out with a footnote containing the verses. So what's going on here? Since we don't have Luke's original manuscripts, the copied manuscripts that we do have are carefully compared to each other. When these manuscripts do occasionally differ from one another, scholars need to determine which text is most likely to be the original. External evidence, like the date the manuscript was likely written and where it was found, as well as in internal evidence, like the context and the theology that are represented, are, are used to logically deduce the best choice. For this piece of scripture, six out of eight of the oldest manuscripts, including all three of the very oldest, do not contain these verses. So scholars believe it's likely they were added later. This example, by the way, is one of the larger ones in the New Testament. There aren't, not, there's not that many, considering how many words there are. The King James and the New King James use a different method for choosing which Greek text to use. Okay, that's, that's why it shows up there. But the important thing to get from all this is that even when some of these ancient Greek texts, Greek, yeah, Greek texts differ from each other, it's only by a little bit. Regardless of whether you put these verses 6 through 8 in or leave them out, it really doesn't change the meaning of the passage. And this, this is true in a broad sense in many for almost all of the, the uh, conflicts they find in the New Testament. And you, usually these just show up in your version as footnotes. Okay, so going on, getting back on the track of the, uh, the text that we're studying today. Verse 10. When the governor had nodded for him to speak, Paul responded, Paul responded with his, this is his defense, knowing that for many years you've been a judge to this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. Paul's introduction is quite a contrast with Tertullus. Right? It's not, not a hint of flattery. Paul had been, or wait, sorry, Felix had been governing and judging for the five or six years. And it's, I really think it's quite impressive and a testament to the Holy Spirit in Paul that he could stand before a powerful and greedy man 
while being accused by other powerful people who hated him, and yet be cheerful. That's not normal, <laughs> but that's the Holy Spirit. 1 Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Going on with verse 11, this is Paul. Since you can take note of the fact that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. Some of the commentaries I read made a big deal of accounting for the number of days, but I don't think that's the point. Paul came to Jerusalem to worship for Pentecost, and that's pretty much all he did. He was not there to be a rabble-rouser. Verse 12, Neither in the temple, nor in the synagogues, nor in the city itself did they find me carrying on a discussion with anyone or causing a riot. Paul was not instigating rebellion. He wasn't even carrying on discussion anywhere within Jerusalem. It goes on in verse 13. Nor can they prove to you the charges of which they now accuse me. They didn't even bring witnesses. But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. The way is what Christianity was called by Christians at that time. Not to be confused with the Mandalorian, this is the way. (laughs) Once again, Paul includes a gospel presentation, although it's a mini version. Psalm 119.46, I will also speak of your testimonies before kings. I shall not be ashamed. And just a reminder that resurrection of both good and bad is a central theme of the whole Bible. Daniel 12.2, an angel speaking to Daniel, telling him what's going to happen in the future. Many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life, but the others to disgrace and everlasting contempt. Or John 528, Jesus is speaking. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. Verse 16, Paul continues, In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience before both God and before men. This is an amazing statement to make, but it's very much like the Paul, like the one Paul made to the Sanhedrin. I, I talked to, at some length about conscience last time I was preaching here. This is back in Acts 23, verse 1. Paul, looking intently at the councils, opened up, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. Boy, I tell you, I want to be able to say this. I want to... I, uh, to do my best to always maintain a blameless conscience before God and men. Isn't that that's a, it seems like a good goal. How about, how about you? Verse 17. Now after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings, in which they found me occupied in the temple, having been purified without any crowd or uproar. But there were some Jews from Asia who also, who ought to have been 
present before you and to, to make accusation if they should have anything against me. So, wait a sec. Why, why do you suppose Ananias didn't bring these Jews from Asia along as witnesses? Well, it's because they were not good witnesses. <laughs> In fact, they were the ones that started the, stirring up the mob. They were the ones that started the trouble. Acts 21, verse 27, when, when the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him. They were the ones who started it, so they didn't want to bring them along. <laughs> Back to Paul, in verse 20, or else let these men themselves, the, the accusers, tell what misdeed they found when I stood before the council, other than for this one statement which, which I shouted out while standing among them, for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. Paul hadn't broken any laws, neither Roman nor Jewish. His main focus was the resurrection of the dead, starting with Jesus Christ. Paul's not confessing a wrong that he did here when he says, other than for this one statement. He's confessing his faith. It's also interesting to notice that he doesn't mention Ananias commanding him to be clobbered which would have been against the Roman law since Paul was a Roman citizen. He didn't even get Ananias in trouble when he could have. In verse 22, But Felix, having a more exact knowledge about the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the commander, comes down, I will decide your case. You know, Felix says this, but he's already read Lysias' statement in a letter earlier. Acts 23 Verse 26, this is the letter. Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix, greetings. When, when this man, when Paul, was arrested by the Jews and was about to be slain by them, I came up with them, I came up to them with the troops and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. Well, almost, it was almost like that. And wanting to ascertain the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council and found him found him to be accused over questions about their law, but under no accusation deserving death or imprisonment. When I was informed that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, also instructing his accusers to bring charges against him before you. So this letter, which came early, which Governor Felix had gotten before, the, before this trial, totally exonerates Paul of the charges they brought against him. Felix didn't want to declare Paul innocent and make Ananias and his cronies angry, though. He just, so he just adjourned the proceedings without delivering a verdict. He'd already heard from Lysias. So then, in verse 23, so he, the uh, governor Felix, gave orders to the centurion for, for Paul to be kept in custody and yet have some freedom and not to prevent any of his friends from ministering to him. It sounds, this reminds me of what I think of as house arrest. Felix knew Paul was innocent, and Paul was a Roman citizen. But Felix was trying to please the Jews, as we'll see. This was all part of God's unexpected plan for Paul. Verse 24, But some days later, Felix arrived with Drusilla, his wife, who was a Jewess, and sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Felix's wife, Drusilla, may have been interested in Christianity, but her family was not. Drusilla's great-grandfather, who was Herod the Great, 
had tried to kill Jesus when he was a toddler in Bethlehem. Remember that? Her great uncle, Herod Antipas, killed John the Baptist. Her father, Herod Agrippa I, killed the Apostle James. Drusilla herself had divorced her first husband to become Felix's third wife. It's quite a soap opera, isn't it? She, she was only about 20 years old at this time. So what, what do you think Paul would have to say about faith in Christ? I, I think well, one of the things he says in Galatians, Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Verse 25, but as Paul was discussing righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix became frightened and said, go away for the present, and when I find time, I will summon you. When I translated this, it, I, it looked to me like he was even more uh, wimpy than my translation of Felix became frightened and replied, go away now, if I get a chance, I'll send for you. In somebody else's words, I'm done talking to you now. <laughs> it's too scary. So what does the Bible have to say about righteousness? It just says he was talking about righteousness. For example, in Jeremiah 22.3, Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness, and deliver the one who has been robbed from the power of his oppressor. Also do not mistreat or do violence to the stranger, the orphan or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. In John 16.8, Jesus is speaking about the Holy Spirit. And when he, and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So what, about, what, what are some things the Bible has to say about self-control that was mentioned here? Galatians, Galatians 5.22 but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And what about the judgment to come? 2 Corinthians 5.10 for, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Hebrews 9.27 And inasmuch it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. Felix sounds like even though he was convicted by the Holy Spirit, he would rather think about it later. I've heard this before, haven't you? But like James told us last week, now is the time, today is the day. Here's a saying I read this week that I hadn't heard before. One of these days is none of these days. Hebrews 3, verses 7 and 8. Therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as, they, as when they provoked me, as in the day of trial in the wilderness. And James 4, 13. Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such a such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. 
So procrastination, especially about making choices, spiritual choices, is not a good thing. Verse 26. At the same time, too, Felix was hoping that money would be given him by Paul. Therefore, he used to often send for him. He used to send for him quite often and converse with him. You know, bribes were, were illegal back then, but they were extremely common. I don't think Paul had much money. Maybe it's like pastors today. I don't know any that are rich, except maybe some questionable ones with big media ministries. Paul might have had some rich friends, but apparently no one paid the bribe. Verse 27. But after two years had passed, think of that, he's under house arrest for two years. After two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And wishing to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul imprisoned. Seems like Paul was just a political pawn in the hands of the Roman and Jewish leaders. But what they meant for evil, God meant for good. Paul was right where God wanted him to be, reforming governments from the inside out, one person at a time, just like he did in this example here. Sharing Christ with individuals. That's the only way we can really make a difference today sharing the good news person to person. We're not going to overthrowing the government or whatever. It's certainly not going to bring people to Christ or bring us more to be more Christ-like, but sharing good news with individual, individual people is. Shakespeare wrote, Conscience doth make cowards of us all. Like Felix, we know the mistakes and shortcomings of our own lives. But Christ paid the penalty for our sins. If we trust him, we don't have to fear his judgment. We can look forward to eternal life in heaven with him. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth that your son paid the penalty for us. I thank you for your spirit that guides us. I thank you for your word that uh, helps us to know you better and brings us closer to you. I thank you for these people here. I thank you for um, being here with us. And we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to learn more about us, check out our website at www.silverlakebaptist.org.